You're listening to the Big Shiny Podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. The Big Shiny Robot Podcast is brought to you by the Bohemian Brewery. This is Nick. This is Lucas. This is John. This is Tom. This is Tyson. And you're listening to the Big Shiny Podcast. If you need a place to drink some good coffee and read comics, Watchtower Cafe is the place for you. The cool thing about Watchtower is it's not just a coffee shop with comic books. It's a great place that lets the geek community in Utah hang out and get together. Go check them out at 1588 South State and tell them Big Shiny Robot sent you. Hello, John. Hello, Lucas. Are you ready for... Uh... An intimate conversation where for 30 minutes I directly ask you questions yeah. that you may refuse to answer. Let's do it. I'm pretty open about most things. Wow. I appreciate that. Yeah. And Nick's kicking around here too because I don't know how to run this gadget, so he may have some questions too. You press this button, and when you're done, you press it again. That's complicated. That's all the way over there. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. We got... Okay. So um, I did this with Tom. I don't know if you listened to the episode with Tom. I did. Doesn't... My brother loved it. Yeah? He listened to it. I'm calling. He's like Tom. He's a he's an interesting guy. <laughs> <laughs> What's your brother's name? Michael. Michael. Yeah. yeah. My brother's name is Michael as well. John, Michael, and Wendy. I'll t- I will try to remember all of that. Not really. Sarah. <laughs> they thought about Wendy. It's Peter Pan. I was gonna say yeah. that's. Uh, yeah. I was. Like, that sounds a little familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, thank you, Michael, for complimenting us on the the interesting conversation. With he's our Tom. core audience. Thank you for being our core one audience. My brother loves Tom. He loved the live podcast. He's like, that poor Tom. Not one joke landed for four straight episodes. That's never how it goes. I thought it was so funny. And Tiffany was in the audience, and she loves Tom's jokes. Yeah. Yeah, Tom. Poor, poor bastard. Okay. So I think I'm going to try to follow a similar outline with that. And I started the conversation with Tom, with you, John. How, How did you and I first meet? We met through Nightflight Comics. You had a hold there. You come in once a week, once every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you knew the guy I was working with, mm-hmm. and we sort of just started talking one day. Yeah, it was pretty casual, and then uh, it's when you started going through your divorce. I don't know why, but you came in and you just spilled everything (laughs) yeah and uh yeah i know all about rebuilding lives so i think that's when we really became friends no i i uh i definitely agree with that i think for me um because you're working with our when i came in a couple times you're working with our friend sean Mm -hmm. who had also been through some like life-changing events and I, i don't know if you went through this when because you've gone through rehab and stuff that we can talk about a little bit but when i was going through this rock bottom life-changing events i found it more cathartic at those times to talk with people that had no relation to anything in my life especially because at that time i didn't know who i could or couldn't trust not that it's no strangers are easy you find out open up about anything yeah yeah and i i felt uh i don't know i felt like a a connection to you pretty easily to be able to talk about this stuff and the advice you'd given me was very helpful i mean i think some of the first stuff you told me was um future tripping was a concept that you would express to me could you explain that again for everybody listening because i was i was having a hard time not being in the present moment yeah i mean i think most 
I I mean, this all comes from the addict perspective, but like I spent most of my life um, worried about the future, things that were way off um, where I'm currently at. And then with that worry came the need to control things. Mm-hmm. And so I was real meticulous in trying to plan out like every situation and conversation and controlling how those would result and i have no control over any of it you know i take all this time and energy to plan things out and it never went how i planned anyways and it would just make me more anxious and frustrated and depressed right right and uh i don't know i i forget the exact context but that's kind of what you were going through in terms of trying to save a marriage yeah because at the time i was going through i was in a separation yeah the divorce hadn't kicked in and that's when you and i first started talking and it was very similar where i was just trying to orchestrate anything in any way that i could get a semblance of control you know because i wasn't living at home i moved out i was living with my folks and didn't have anything that belonged to me so i had, I had no control in my life and uh, i think you helped me learn how to embrace that when so uh, we can come back to some of the stuff where you and i talked more but maybe that it helped to how did you come to utah because you're from minnesota yeah grew up in minnesota lived there pretty much my whole life aside from two years of college in illinois oh i didn't know that yeah i went my freshman sophomore year um, to bradley university a private school in peoria illinois oh sounds fancy party only it was fancy i did party <laughs> i uh it's a whole other story did not finish there ended up graduating <laughs> from the university of minnesota um i came out here for treatment at the ripe age of 31 yeah yeah what? Do you mind saying how that had come about? Like, was this something that had been building for a while or? Oh yeah. So 13 started smoking pot regularly. It was pretty much daily pot smoker from 13 to 31. And, uh, when I was 15, got real into hallucinogenics. I tripped on mushrooms or acid pretty much every weekend, Friday and Saturday night for my entire sophomore year of high school. Wow. Uh, my brother developed some cancer in his leg around that time. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, the mid to late nineties. Um, and he can't stomach opiates. And I had had painkillers from my wisdom teeth. Gotcha. And I was like, Oh yeah, I like this. Mm. I remember when I got my wisdom teeth out, I got Vicodin and my mom just like left the bottle in my room. Oh God. And I took two. You know, because it said take one, and so of course I took two. And I was like, this is nice. I like this. And I ended up just roughing it out. I was like, I want to save this for when I can smoke pot and combine the two of these and not get dry sockets. And I ended up just putting the Vicodin in a drawer so I could use it a week later. Oh, wow. When I was able to smoke pot. So my brother got cancer. Was your brother older or younger than you? Younger. I have a brother three years younger than me and a sister six years younger than me. Okay. So when he got this cancer, we ended up having a lot of uh, Roxycontin and Oxycontin in our house. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't really taking it, and I started taking it. And then I realized no one, the opiate em- epidemic hadn't happened yet, so I could literally take the empty bottle, go up to the drugstore a few blocks from our house, say I'm picking it up for my brother, and they wouldn't bat an eye at it. Really? 
run the engine. You know, it cost me three dollars, and I'm getting you know, then they another two months of painkillers with no problem. Wow. So yeah, I became pretty regular opiate user at 16. Um, carried on through high school. My brother had some complications. Um, he went through you know chemo, radiation treatment, weakened his femur. He was a soccer player. Oh wow. He did all this work for physical therapy so he could play soccer again the last day of his tryouts a year later. Um, he had to carry someone on his back, and his femur snapped from the weight, and oh so God. then he had to get a bone graft, and then Damn. you know, eight months later, the bone graft didn't take, so they had to redo it. So we had a lot of painkillers. Sure. And so I just had free reign up until I left for college. Um, went to college. That was rough. I went through horrible withdrawal. I didn't even know withdrawal, like what that was as a concept. I thought I had like the worst flu in my life my first week of college. Was that in Illinois? That was in Illinois. And it turns out I was just going through opiate withdrawal. And you know, years later, I can look back and be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what why that was. I felt yeah. so shitty. Um, went to school out there. That got weird. Um, got into drugs I didn't even know existed. My freshman year of college was like all GHB and oh, ether God. and just weird. Yeah. And I have seen people G out. Oh, like, yeah. That was a big thing here for a while with some a group of people I hung out with because of the girls. It was all the drunk and none of the calories. Yeah. And then a friend of mine, uh, Joe Nasty, Joe Price, he would do it because he was on probation and it didn't show up in yeah. his drug tests oh, and i've man. seen people like try to fight cars on the road and oh yeah geez, i mean crazy. i was getting i hate drinking to me drinking is like the dumbest thing it takes so <laughs> much work you have to keep doing it like my opinion was always like why don't you snort a pill like a normal person why do you <laughs> one snort and you're good for like six hours why are you gonna keep drinking over and over you have to pee all the time just none of it made sense to me so fair assessment yeah um yeah so yeah i went to college uh had kind of a rough year, obviously, doing a lot of drugs. I was on probation the second semester, got it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents were cool again, went home for the summer. So were your parents aware of this stuff? They knew I smoked some weed. Yeah, they knew I was a cigarette smoker. I don't think they knew. I don't really know. We haven't talked about it a lot. I think it wasn't until later when they realized it was a problem. You know, I think back then it was kind of... Our son likes to party, but, like, it's not a problem. You You were going to a private university. Yeah, yeah. And, like, first semester they were concerned, and then, you know, I got it together, and, like, okay, it was just a change. He wasn't ready for it. He's adjusted. Uh, Went home for the summer, went back to school, and about a month into school, uh, Grateful Dead reunited, and I just took off with my girlfriend, and we did a lot of shows. Um I didn't want to tell my parents this is what I wanted to do because I knew they wouldn't support it, Uh, which also meant I didn't drop any of my classes, so (laughs) I pretty much missed... So yeah, they pretty much just threw away like $30,000, so I didn't show up to any courses. Wow. They couldn't get the refund because I didn't actually drop them correctly, and so I just carried on this guise of being in school for pretty much the whole semester. And then after I went home for Thanksgiving and they saw that I had no books with me and didn't study at all, they knew something was up. And I pretty much waited till I got back to Illinois. I was just like, yeah, I'm not in school. And they're like, well, you enjoy your last two weeks. You're coming back to Minnesota. 
How old were you at this point? Like 20? This No, no. I was 19 years old. And so I went back to Minnesota, uh, finished my generals at community college, did really well. Uh, told my parents, like, it's probably pot. I'm going to quit smoking pot, stop smoking pot. That lasts about three, four months. Then, hmm. you know, things were going well, and so I started again. I uh, went to the University of Minnesota. Things went well. And then right around the time I was graduating, Oxycontin came back again. Had a friend, got hit by a car in L.A., was getting a ton of pain pills. Had another friend, got injured in the Army, was getting a ton of pain pills. It just became a regular thing again. I got a decent job. I was making a lot of money. I had very little expenses, and so sure. a, lot of, a lot of drugs. And that went on for the next 10 years, just to make a long story very short. It was yeah. a really... Having an exorbitant amount of money and then a habit. Yeah. And then I had like six great years and then just four awful years. Mm. And it was right around when I turned 28, like I knew things were bad and I needed a change and I self-detoxed. How did you, was it just a different perspective on the behavior that you were having? Like what about that made you feel like? I'm I using my mental my state. Like, I was not happy. The mm. party had ended, you know. It was now I was just trying to maintain so I wouldn't be sick. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. And I'm not really getting high anymore. I'm taking, you know, triple the amount of when I started. And I'm not hitting, you know, the feeling I wanted. Yeah, just to maintain not. But if I didn't do it, I would get sick. And so it was this horrible chain of, like, I have to go to work so I can get money to get more drugs to be able to show up to work. You know, just like this stupid <laughs> cycle that I couldn't get out of. Sounds awful. And things... Yeah, I stopped doing things I enjoyed. I was just pretty miserable all around. Um, two relationship that had been going on for a year or more ended pretty much based on my drug use. Sure. Because uh, I was a drug addict. I couldn't love someone else. Like, I enjoyed my girlfriends, but, like, if they were, like, who do you love, I would say opiates. It would never be them, you know? Mm -hmm. Were they aware of your... Habits. To varying degrees, you know, I was pretty good at hiding it for about a year. Gotcha. Like, that was always the time frame. It was at about the one year mark, they would realize I'm full of shit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like my emotional connectedness was like me being high and feeling lovey-dovey and it was all a sham. Oh, I, you know, as a selfish human being. And then, yeah, there was a period of like two weeks where like things got really out of hand. And my roommate at that time was like, dude, like, I love you. This is enough. Like, you either need to figure it out or I'm going to reach out to your parents and we'll figure out a plan together. And I wasn't ready for that. So I was like, I'm good. I'll quit. Mm -hmm. uh, I was supposed wow. to go to a music festival one weekend, told my family I was out of town and just locked myself in the house and sweat it out. So how long did the detoxing last at that point? It was like a... Six days for the physical, um, and then I just didn't That's know enough. That's pretty dangerous too, right? No, with opiates, like you feel like you're gonna die, you're probably not gonna die. Okay, it just feels alcohol very dangerous. You can seizure and stuff. This is just horrible. Okay, cramping, restless legs, sweating. Sounds miserable. First six nausea. Days. Yeah, and I mean, I was still 
a drug user. You know, I was just quitting opiates. Gotcha. And so my detox involved like 90 Xanax and a quarter pound of marijuana. So it's pretty much just like knock myself out until this is over. Like wake up, take a handful of Xanax, smoke a bunch of weed, knock myself out and try to sleep through the whole thing. Shit. Um, And so I got through it. And then what I didn't know was like all the anxiety and post-acute withdrawal stuff. I had no concept of. I thought like, oh, I'm gonna be sick for a week and then I'll be good. I didn't realize like my brain was gonna be whacked out for a whole emotional of the time. Level. So I tried going back to my job. It was not working. I was really unhappy. It was super stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I left my job, started managing a band, and had like 18 months of relative sobriety. Hmm. I'd smoke pot now and then. I definitely ate some mushrooms a few times through there but it wasn't it was the least amount of drugs i've been doing since i was 13 wow and had a great year and then they got signed to a record label and i was like it's been you know about 18 months like i deserve this i can just go get two oxycontin pills and enjoy myself and be fine and those two pills turned into like a four-day, $1,500 bender. Holy and by shit. the end Jesus. of that, I was right back where I was. Like, my tolerance was at its peak again. Really? That fast? Oh, yeah. Withdrawal was setting in after only a week. You know what it had taken many years to get to happen in about a week. Wow. And, uh, of course, I just moved in with a girl at that point. And so, like, things just... I had the worst year of my life. So that was at 30 years old. And the next year was like the darkest. Just yeah, wanting bottom. to die. It was so bad. Yeah, And I got into heroin at that point because pills had kind of become harder to get. And heroin was abundant in Minnesota. It's and... abundant everywhere. Oh, no. But we were an emerging market for the yeah. cartel. So our heroin was testing at about 80% purity Jesus. compared to the 34 to 40% nationwide. And so it was out of control. And so, yeah, I don't, it was living with the girlfriend, hiding the heroin use, uh, couldn't maintain that. So we stayed. What were you doing for work right then? Were you still with the band? Oh, no, I went back to logistics. I was working logistics. Okay. So I'm making all right money again. Yeah. Um, I'm working with truck drivers who also enjoy drugs lots of speed so i had another you know i'm getting heroin from the cartel in minnesota and then i have a driver where if i would give him an extra 200 dollars on his cash advance he would drive back to philadelphia and bring me a ton of prescription painkillers and so that's happening every week you know he'd be there every wednesday that's fucking crazy and yeah it just got bad girlfriend couldn't take any more left um didn't know as a drug didn't think it was drugs just thought i was like an emotionally devoid unhappy person yeah something selfish right uh but it was bad because i was so strung out like i couldn't stand human touch really it just like grossed me out like the slightest i would rather die than spoon someone for 30 seconds in a relationship does not work no so we separate went our separate ways um I moved into a condo and just shit 
hit a whole new level of despair. Like I could not, I had mirrors covered. I couldn't stand like shaving was the worst activity. So I'd have to look myself in the face for like five minutes. (laughs) I couldn't do it. And then, uh, yeah, it was basically just trying to overdose. And my tolerance was so high, I couldn't die. And so then I'd have to wake up and go to work so I could try again the next day and have the money to do it. It was... I'm sorry, that sounds... It was crazy. And then, uh, luckily, my family ran into a buddy of mine who had gotten sober like 10 years earlier and become like a pretty prominent figure in the recovery community. Hmm. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to utah to pick this guy up for treatment like if you get a plane ticket we'll figure it out we'll make it work just get him a plane ticket he can fly with me we'll get him into treatment wow so they so your parents had kind of picked up on something was wrong and you knew oh yeah yeah they knew for sure i mean i had told them when i got clean after i'd been clean about a year from opiates i was like hey like here's what was going on i know you thought something was up i'm sure you thought i was just like mentally ill but like here's what was happening i'm good now and they're like okay (laughs) this doesn't sound great but like he's doing it you know he's doing something he enjoys sure sure he's not asking us for stuff like he must be fine you know yeah and then things were not going well and i don't it's kind of a cry for help i went to my dad's work one day and we're talking i was just like dad like i did heroin the other day I don't think I'm going to do it again, but, like, I tried heroin. And he's yeah. like, okay, this isn't good. So, like, why are you telling me this? Do you need money? Is that what's happening here? Do you need me to write you a child? I was like, no, I think, like, I need to see a therapist. And they're like, why don't you go to treatment? I was like, I don't need treatment. I just need to, like, talk to someone. I'm unhappy. Yeah. That's a little so, more self-aware than, like, I feel like a lot of people would be, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew it was bad because I'd already gone through this once and it did not work. And now it was starting all over again. Uh, But I still just wasn't like treatment always freaked me out. Hmm. Well, I'm sure because you have no control in that situation. And you're just afraid of change. You know, you're a drug addict. Change is the scariest thing in the world. And so it's like, oh, I have to leave my life. Like, I have all this stuff, which really doesn't matter. Like a fucking job I've had for nine months that I don't care about. or. That's you know, amazing. A when fucking you... apartment where like I'm renting, I'm gonna move anyway. You know, like all this stuff that is totally temporary. Like that was my life. I didn't know how to leave it. What am I gonna do? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I dragged on for like another six months, and then finally, I just went to treatment right after Thanksgiving of 2014, What's December first. So your friend brought you out. Yeah, brought me out. I spent five days in detox, and then went to treatment for like eighty three days 82 days wow and then went to a sober living where i work now and i was a resident there for four months at what point did i meet you you met me while i was in the sober living i started working in night flight my second month of sober living yeah and I, we met somewhere in there yeah because i remember mimi mentioning that because the they were having some turnover with the employees at that point and they'd mentioned, oh, we're going to have this new guy, John. He's going to be great. He's going through treatment, and we're excited to help him out Like in this situation. I remember she, they were very excited about you coming in. I wrote a awesome like cover letter. Yeah. <laughs> so I went in um, Which I and just asked about a job, and it was Mimi working, and she was super intense, and it freaked me out because she's like, well, what are you reading? And I've been in treatment for the previous 
you know, four months now. Yeah. Excuse me. Plus, <laughs> before that, I don't imagine you were reading a lot of comics. I couldn't spend money on comic books. Mm-hmm. So I'm like a year behind, so I start talking about like the most recent. And she's like, that's not recent. That's like a year old. And I didn't know what to say. I want to be like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I've had like a crippling drug addiction, so I'm behind a little bit. <laughs> And then but I've been locked in already. a building for the previous three months and haven't really had contact with the outside world. <laughs> so she's like, well, send me a resume. Here's my email. We'll see. And I was like, that didn't go well, but I decided to do it anyways. And then I wrote this cover letter. And in it, I just like fucking poured it all out. I was like, here's what's going on. And it was basically like an essay. Mm-hmm comparing my mask of addiction to peter parker and his mask of spider-man and just did this huge thing like yeah it sounds deep i mean i know how important spider-man and peter parker yeah and i was just like you know like i hid this from my family blah 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 similar to peter parker hiding being spider-man from his family because he thinks he's gonna help him but really like they would be better off if they just knew then they'd at least know that like bad things are gonna happen they know why and they can look out for it and wrote this huge thing yeah and then the end was just like a pleading it was like yeah i just did a bunch of like superheroes and sidekicks <laughs> and then i ended it with like uh oliver and speedy because he's a heroin ad. Yeah. I was like, maybe that was a bad exam and alan <laughs> loved that when i went in <laughs> to follow up alan was like dude that was that's what did it we're gonna hire you and it's like sweet sounds great and that's how i started working there and it was the best thing i ever did yeah i i'm glad it turned out that way for you yeah i mean it's exactly what i needed was just like many months of like a very low stress enjoyable job yeah not a lot of responsibility you know like i was opening closing counting the drawer but like that's all that's a pretty good like I'm yeah, in sober living. Totally. I don't need like a, any extra stress added on. This is something good. And it freaked me out because I had been in a career basically for the previous decade, mm-hmm. which was real high stress. And, you know, I had a ton of money. I It was just good for many reasons. It like, taught me how to budget again. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't done that ever. And I had just a lot of good came out of it. Yeah. I mean, it's... It allowed me to focus on myself, I guess what I'm saying, like without having to worry about like the career portion of things, because my family was kind of pushing me to get right back in. Like, you need health insurance, you need it, you got to go back to getting a job. And it's yeah, like, this is little not retail. The time for that. Yeah. Well, especially night flight. While it could be busy here or there, for the most part, it's pretty chill. And there's plenty of time for self reflection, you know? I yeah. I remember in college having time where I could just kind of sit there with my thoughts and. You still do your things where you're washing the windows or different shit, but really you're just there with your thoughts for a bit. Totally. Which I think is pretty healthy. Yeah. So yeah, that um so that's how you got to the night flight. Yes. That that long story is No 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 that's, that's where that's good. I ended up night flight. John's origin story. That's like I, the quickest I've told that to you. I skipped a lot of just gave you the bare bones well, version of we've that. We've heard little other pieces. Yeah. yeah, and that's where I thought too. Uh, when I was talking with Tom that if we did this with each of us it might help give some perspective because I know we do have some pretty regular listeners um, they probably have picked up or understood that you've uh, had an addiction before because you've you've made jokes about it like on the live show and different things oh, like yeah. that oh yeah you've told stories you too laugh about I remember it. you told the story about you woke up with a bunch of power tools yeah, yeah. oh yeah that was 
Bradley University. <laughs> oh, what? GHB. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you were night flight, and then I started bothering you a little bit during the, my separation. I'd come in, because um, at that point, too, when my uh, ex-wife asked for separation, I also lost my job at the same time. So I found I'd moved ha- home and had an extraordinary amount of time on my hands without... Uh, much to fill it with really i was looking for another job but you know how that goes yeah so i ended up coming into the comic shop and that's something i'd done before there was when i lost uh i had this job for a while at a greeting card company that ended really poorly um i'd been there for five or six years and after that i kind of fell into about a depression for a couple years i didn't know it at the time i probably didn't realize that until the separation but in that time and in this time during the separation with my ex-wife, I'd go to night flight and I'd just spend the time there. And Alan Mimi had always told me, if you ever need some extra cash or time to spend or you need to just whatever, you can come into the shop. So that's what I did. And I got to hang out and talk with you and Sean quite a bit. And you gave me a lot of helpful advice. I think because we're a similar age, it felt like you had gone through this life-changing event and were able to give me some helpful perspective now that you were kind of out of the weeds of that. A yeah, bit, you know, I mean, it was I loved it because like that was the first like happiness I had experienced and since before I was 13, probably really. Oh, yeah. I didn't know what happiness was. I had like numbness and despair and self-loathing mm-hmm. and like MDMA and LSD, you know induced euphoria and like that's what happiness was to me i don't understand that it's just like the stable you wake up and things are okay and you go to bed and things are okay like that i didn't know what that was and so this was you know i'd experienced that for a couple months now Mm -hmm. and it was exciting because you know through the power of alcoholics anonymous i had found this thing and I'm not a diehard AA guy, but like I had worked the steps and I found stuff that was useful to me. And then you came with a similar because I don't know. I mean, very different. You had an actual wife, but like I had just gone through a fucking divorce with the love of my life, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. Opiates were gone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Like, unfortunately, that is, that was my wife. We, yeah. Well, there's a certain amount of grief it with was any an loss. unhealthy relationship. Yeah. She was a controlling bitch. I'm just picturing Never this, like, really me. sexy pill, like, <laughs> anthropomorphized, yeah. like, Don, come here, honey. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, so it was cool for me, because I was like, oh, I'm in a position to actually potentially help someone. Yeah. You know, whether you, it's a lot or a yeah. little, like, something I say may actually hold some value. And provide some insight as opposed to always being the person where I'm just going from chaotic event to chaotic event and people are bailing me out, you know? Right. No, you definitely, you helped me out a lot, um, which would be an understatement even then. And it's it's interesting being able to look on that for you because when I started to get out of my divorce and got out of the weeds and kind of could be more in the now and less worrying about the future and all the different things i had some other friends start going through different things that were their life-changing events it feels like that period your late 20s early 30s is when something hasn't happened that's when it hits and it hits pretty hard and i was able to help them through some stuff and it gave me some interesting perspective on 
what you must have been thinking when I came to you and as well as just how far I'd come at that point to be able to give advice or perspective on something that had been so raw and difficult to even think about, let alone have a conversation with someone else on what they were going through that was similar. So, I don't know. All I was thinking was, this dude's getting divorced. <laughs> like, the first thing we were talking about, was like, I don't think it's my place to say yet, but this is not going to go well. And then there was that night I just told you. Well, there was a couple times. I felt real uncomfortable about that. But yeah, I think that might have even like been we were it. not, we'd been talking, but like we'd only known each other a couple months at most, you know? Well, yeah, my separation started in October, and then the divorce started in January. So yeah. that was our friendship, you and me. I um, remember you showing up at Tom's birthday in, like, December. Yeah. yeah. It would have been early December, and I think that's what you're probably referring to right now. Because I remember you having a it pretty It was shortly after that, and you called me one night. Oh, and, that's right. And you're just like, she's not doing A, B, and C. And I was like, I know you don't want to hear this, but you kind of, like, Sounds like you just need to get divorced. Yeah. I know that sucks, but, like, it's going to be better in the long run. Yep. You're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had no, back-to-back conversations because there was you and then my other friend Vincent out in Colorado, and he told me similar because he was another guy outside of all of the circles that had no dog in the race or dog in the fight, however that goes. Um, yeah. And he, because I, I was just in a stupor. I didn't know what to do, so I was talking to different people so you called me and then he had a message i'd sent him earlier so he called me right after and he's like luke i don't know i don't know you i don't know your your wife i don't know anything about you you need to get a lawyer and you need to get a divorce and even then i don't uh, i think i knew that the writing was on the wall and that wall was headed for me as fast as it could be for you know an inanimate object and near behind that was rock bottom which was also great but I think that uh, both of those conversations helped prepare me for the moment when it was done. Because it, it didn't happen then, but there were some things that happened right after that that it was like, okay, this is this is it, you know? And you being that straight with me helped me be mentally prepared for that. So although it was completely shocking and uh, debilitating to slam into rock bottom, it was also kind of like, okay, yeah, this is what John said it would feel like. Oh, and it's great because you get that clarity. Man, rock bottom. It's the best thing ever. (laughs) I mean, it's the worst. It's like the best worst thing or the worst best thing. But it's, you just get that clarity where you're like, all right, this is it. I got nowhere to go but forward at this point. Well, and it's it's almost, um, because I used to have a lot of anxiety about anything and everything and control and stuff like you talked about. And there's something to be said for when you hit that, that worst fear, like I'm getting a divorce. This is the worst thing that could have ever happened to me in my life, as far as I was concerned up till this point. And I'm living through it. And there's still things around me, even though I have nothing from what I wanted to carry on, you know? It's such a weird perspective that you only get by having nothing and just slamming into rock bottom. Yeah, I I think it's important. Like. I would wish rock bottom on everyone. <laughs> Seriously, it gives you a perspective that it's a, a lot of people do. don't have. You shouldn't you... always bail people out. Like I didn't need to be bailed out of that situation. I needed to know this is not healthy and it's going to end and you will probably lose <laughs> I everything. Know. I just think like I know I talk about this with my other friends in recovery, but like we have this fucking dark 
experience that a good chunk of the population has never had and the perspective that provides us is invaluable you know like you see people complaining about the petty shit Mm -hmm. in their lives that has no you know like what you ever jerked off in a car for another man to get 20 bucks to buy some dope like you don't you know like it's (laughs) not it's pretty dark yeah yeah it's well that's like on my side maybe not the jerking off of another human being but the like being in the relationship with Danielle because she's gone through some very difficult things around the same time I was. I think that's how we bonded so close, so quick. But when we have like a disagreement because you're in a relationship that happens, it's really easy for the two of us to find perspective very quickly and be like, this isn't anything. Mm-hmm. Let's just go to a movie. Let's go Last nice night, uh, talking to my zach about everything and i was like oh yeah tomorrow we're gonna podcast with lucas and john and we're talking about like so we're living and everything and another friend of ours and i was like yeah it's kind of crazy like these two people like after lucas's divorce his emotional iq is so much higher than most people and like talking about things is so different and like (laughs) same with you like these conversations are completely different than i have with most people oh really you're very different to talk to like not in a bad way at all but yeah. there's definitely a change, and it's just because, like, yeah, your mindset's different. You I, see things differently now. I appreciate that, and I've I've thought a lot about that too. Because Nick and I, um, and we'll talk more about Nick and I how we met in the next one. But uh, a lot of our friendship was just online because um, he'd work a day job, I worked a day job, but we could both chat. So we just have always chatted, and I've I've remembered looking back now how dark and much despair and just shitty my life was and not by any person's reason i don't blame anybody it's just my life wasn't good and i didn't allow it to be because i kept fighting myself on everything that needed to change you know and that's that's part of the reason i appreciate having you as a friend john is um when i hit some really weird wall or have some grief or something creep up on me or i feel shame and guilt clawing at my back you know it's nice to be able to reach out and say hey dude this is fucked and have you give me some perspective like yeah man yeah because some of my friends um present company excluded i'm terrible at these conversations they make me extremely uncomfortable i'm well aware of that (laughs) i don't i wouldn't say you're terrible you were a really good friend through the whole thing the difference what i'm getting at is when the divorce happened when it was like this is it this is happening the first thing i did is called my closest friends because i wanted them to hear it for me and the the conversations I had were shocking in a lot of cases. Uh, there was a few friends that are no longer friends that didn't know what to say or do. And in fact, they ended up doing the most hurtful things they could have instead of, they didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to be supportive. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But they, they ended up going in such a hurtful direction just because they didn't know what to do. Um, so that that was interesting to me, that perspective that changed so quickly as to who can actually hang and why are they in my life if they can't you know oh absolutely i my friends you know i have like probably i have a core group who've stuck by me and friendship has continued i've lost a lot for various reasons either Mm -hmm. i've outgrown them or they outgrew my shit sure sure i've burned a lot of people you know a lot of things unfortunately an apology or some money cannot fix you know (laughs) like i've tried to fix things as best i can but there's some that are just unfixable that's a part of 
the process, right? Is to try to yeah, make making, some form of amends. making amends to everyone, and most of them went great, and some I can't do because no matter what is said or what is done to try to right things, it'll just cause more damage, mm. and that's what I'm trying to avoid. You know, I've done enough damage in 20 years of addiction. I don't want to do anymore if avoidable. Yeah, right, right. Just not to say I don't do it. Still, I fuck things up. Yeah. You know? That's human nature, I say the though. wrong things to my girlfriend now and then. Well, I mean, who doesn't? You know, I've been had brief moments of dishonesty with my parents since getting sober, mm-hmm. which is a lot better than like constant years of dishonesty. Yeah. But like, you know, I'll call, and that's the best part about it is like I get to stop mid sentence and be like, "I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm doing this. This is old behavior. Here's what's going on. I fucked up, or you know, whatever the situation." Is. Yeah, having that accountability. And they are, of course, like not happy, mm-hmm. but get it and see the improvement, you know? And then my friends, like you guys were saying, like my close friends, there's like, they notice the difference. How you just told Luca, like, I have that. And they're like, it's weird. Like, you are far more <laughs> <laughs> open than you were before. But like at the same time, like, you're doing well. We're happy. Hmm. yeah it's a sign of health and then it's cool to have them come to me when things go wrong and i you know sure. that change in dynamic where you hear that a lot in treatment like you put the work in you're gonna end up uh, mentally emotionally a lot healthier than the people around you and i'm starting to see that not to say i'm better it's just like i've put all this work in a lot of people are just facing things with no context of how to deal with them and mm-hmm. i'm now in a position where i can provide some insight and assistance mm-hmm. and they actually care and will follow through on it rather than this guy don't know what the fuck he's talking about <laughs> yeah they've seen you go through some Do shit. more drugs john yeah like, <laughs> not... <laughs> yeah when i was uh first going through my separation i think i kind of went through my own a of sorts because I, I wasn't real happy with how i lived my life up to that point and especially with the like, toxic masculinity and the ways that i thought i was supposed to live my life i was pretty shitty to not a lot of people, but I had very shitty moments with some people that I shouldn't have. So a big chunk of my separation was because uh, I don't think a lot of people know this, but the first two weeks to the first month and a half, I was supposed to have very like limited contact with my ex-wife, uh, only business kind of things. So I had all this time on my hands, and we were so codependent that like, I didn't know what to do with myself. So that's when I started going back and trying to make amends with how shitty I was about some of the things I shouldn't have been shitty about. And that helped give me a lot of perspective. And I think my side of the coin is maybe a little different than yours in that I used to try to caretake for everything and everybody as a part of my way to control that anxiety. I absolutely did. And now I know much more how, like, here's an in, here's a nugget of information that might help you. Good luck. You know, I'm not going to carry you to the door. I'll let you find it on your own, you know. Well, and a huge thing for me was helping people... And I would tell myself I was doing it for the sake of helping people, but really my helping people was just another selfish act to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense at yeah. all? Like it would allow me to be like, oh, well, you're not such a huge piece of shit because you're doing this. But really the only reason I was doing it was to try to balance out the scale of being a huge piece of shit. Right. Which in itself is extremely selfish. I ran a mm-hmm. detox in my apartment. I really? got three friends off drugs. Under the guise that I was still clean 
and could help them with the process when really it was like, oh, I can taper them off their drugs and then I'll have a bunch of leftover drugs that I can just do for free. <laughs> so I dealt with these people throwing up and shitting in my apartment. Yeah, yeah. And being like, oh, I'm Mr. Nice, I'm going to help you, when really it was just to get free drugs so I could secretly do drugs in the bathroom while they're all trying to clean up. Shit. Yeah, bunches. Yeah, that's just one of countless selfish acts that were under the mental gymnastics of me being a good person. Talking myself into thinking I was decent. I, I think a good way to wrap up our conversation then is to move to now. You're working at this place that you you went to yeah i'm now an operations manager at a sober living that i went through myself which in itself is like the coolest highest honor ever i mean these guys like treatment was great Mm -hmm. um if for nothing else like it gave me just like 90 days of no option to do drugs you know Mm -hmm. i mean like you always have the option but like i was pretty much just away you know Mm -hmm. um and it planted a bunch of seeds but going to the place i went to after and their philosophy is what hit me you know yeah yeah that's what stuck with me which is essentially like be a decent person have your word mean something be a man of your word and sounds simple i mean something you know my parents raised me on but like it just clicked at that point this is a good moment to have that yeah you can be told the same thing at 20 30 times but sometimes just that right moment you have to realize what it actually means yeah have some extra depth to it and it wasn't a focus on you know they're like we're not here to tell you if you're a drug addict like if you're here you're probably a drug addict but like basically like if you can keep your word and be honest and do drugs, go for it. But it doesn't work for us. And like, that's it for me. You know, I could probably make it work for a while, but like, I know where that road leads. Mm-hmm. And now I just preach that same message. And that's, that's it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, John, thank you for letting me talk to you about this stuff. I know it's not a big deal to you, but I think the perspective outside of this, some people might think that'd be uncomfortable. So I think it's really cool that yeah. you didn't mind sharing our story. I used to do story. this regularly in front of groups of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we missed a real opportunity here. Yeah. Because it started out with, hi, my name's John. <laughs> I'm an alcoholic addict. <laughs> well, thanks, John. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. I love you very much, John. Love you too. This episode has been brought to you by the Bohemian Brewery, located at 94 East Fort Union Boulevard in Midvale, Utah. Please make sure to like and rate us on iTunes. Be sure to check out our friends through being cool, and we'll catch you guys next week.